0: There are more than a million physicians, 3.5 million nurses, more than 100,000 PAs, close to a quarter million advanced practice nurses, and at least a quarter million paramedics and EMTs working in the United States today. Many of these professionals will encounter patients with COVID or suspected COVID many times a day. The Department of Health and Human Services estimates that fighting coronavirus will require about 3.5 billion face masks. Healthcare workers are infected at rates triple those of non-clinicians and die at higher rates too. When these professionals are sick, quarantined, or dead, staffing shortages produce a domino effect of harm. Many hospital systems across the nation are continuing to grapple with shortages of PPE. In light of evidence that up to one-quarter of infected, contagious COVID patients may be asymptomatic, the CDC has recommended that Americans wear cloth masks. Cloth, of course, because there simply aren't enough medical-grade masks to go around. So we are now in a distressing situation where we're asking providers to reuse disposable N95 masks until they are, quote, ripped, soiled, or wet, unquote, at which point the CDC advises against their use. We've all heard the analogy, we're asking soldiers to go into battle without the proper armor. There are many factors which have contributed to the mismatch between demand and supply for masks right now. First of all, China's unique position as the origin of the epidemic and the country which exports 80% of masks worldwide made for a perfect storm of disruption of supply chains. During the early stages of the epidemic in China, the Chinese government began producing masks in higher volumes while restricting the export of masks and other PPE to other nations. As the virus spread, Taiwan, Germany, France, and India also began to restrict PPE exports. Thus, the United States was challenged to come up with 3.5 billion masks without the usual exports from countries which previously accounted for the vast majority of our PPE supply. Prestige Ameritech is the biggest domestic producer of masks. It's upping its production from 250,000 masks a day, aiming to make a million masks a day. The CEO, though, of Prestige was interviewed a couple days ago in NPR, and he simply said there's just no way the U.S. will be able to meet the demand for masks. He described his company's near ruin after the H1N1 pandemic, in which Prestige built a whole new factory, hired 150 workers to meet this new demand, and then had to fire many of them and nearly went bankrupt when the H1N1 flu resolved. It's predictable and well-studied that epidemics and other wide-scale disasters do disrupt supply chains. Supermarkets and retailers in the U.S. largely run nowadays on just-in-time supply chains and hold as little inventory possible to meet demand. In late February, public health officials warned of a depletion in supply of PPE, which they framed as mostly a concern for the protection of healthcare workers at the time. These warnings, though, led to a rush of civilians purchasing medical supplies and PPE, further depleting an already strained supply. The White House is working on efforts to provide tens of millions of masks to healthcare workers each month, starting right away. But Bloomberg Law reports that it could take over 18 months to fill the White House's order of 500 million N95 masks from China. According to Saskia Popescu, an epidemiologist who studies healthcare preparedness, quote, supply chain issues were a well-documented challenge. It's more surprising that we let it get this bad, unquote. The federal government does have the National Strategic Stockpile, of course, which was formed in 1999 as anxiety about Y2K mounted. This federal stockpile was designed to prevent an interruption to hospital supply chains in the event of a disaster on New Year's Eve. That disaster failed to materialize, but the National Strategic Stockpile was mobilized after 9-11, after the anthrax scare, and during the 2009-2010 H1 epidemic. In 2005, as part of an influenza epidemic preparedness effort, President Bush called for the stockpiling of 52 million surgical masks and 104 N95 masks. 100 million of those masks were used in the 2009 H1N1 response, but then they were never replaced. When COVID hit, the national stockpile had only about 40 million masks, according to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which is about 1% of the projected need. The Trump administration has deployed the Defense Production Act in order to increase the supply of PPE. According to a U.S. Conference of Mayors survey published a few days ago, 213 cities across 41 states and Puerto Rico currently report a shortage of PPE. Six of those cities have populations over 1 million. More than 90% of the cities don't have enough face masks, for first responders and medical personnel, and 88% report that they don't have an adequate supply of PPE. We'll be interviewing next a medical student who's one of many private citizens businesses and organizations who are joining governmental efforts to bring masks and other ppe to healthcare care providers on the front lines we're grateful to have the opportunity to speak with taylor hopper today taylor is a second year medical student at the tulane university school of medicine she's the incoming president of the school's student council and is one of more than a hundred tulane medical students who have mobilized to collect and distribute ppe to hospitals in New Orleans.
1: Hi, Taylor. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey there, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I understand you and the Tulane University School of Medicine COVID response group are working 12 hour
2: days these days. So we very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much. No, it's an honor to be um, worthy to talk to. (laughs) Hey, listen. um,
1: How did you and your fellow students become involved in the COVID response group? And just fill us in and let us know exactly what you all are doing.
2: Yeah, so here at Tulane, we have the Student Clinic Council, which oversees all 22 of our student-run clinical sites, which range from preceptor clinics where a physician oversees us taking histories and all that with the patient, and then also doing TB tests. So I am currently the secretary, and then I will be the incoming president for the Student Clinic Council. And when the COVID-19 was starting to ramp up, and all of our clinical sites were shut down for the year, we reached out to our administration to see if we could donate all of our supplies, and they were very thankful, and they said, you know, could you guys also start um, maybe reaching out to community members and creating a donation drive? And then that kind of snowballed, and now we're here today, and we've been collecting donations for the past two and a half weeks.
1: That sounds amazing. So just to back up one second, you said all of your clinical sites were shut down. Does that mean that you were living the normal crazy life of a second year medical student and then classes just stopped? Or how was your education changed by this epidemic? Um,
2: Yeah. So... For second years, it was strange and not strange at the same time. Uh, Second years are studying for the first step in our board certification process. So really not much changed for us when they decided to stop, halt all clinical activity. However, for first year medical students and for third and fourth year medical students, that was an abrupt change because the third and fourth years were pulled out of the hospitals and all their clinic sites that they were acting, you know, as medical students, learning all of that stuff and the first year medical students were no longer to volunteer in any capacity. So for them, it was, you know, that was quite a stark change.
1: And I hear that more than 100 of you have gotten involved in this project. Can you tell us a little bit about what you all are doing?
2: Yeah, so this all happened on a Thursday. And then by Friday, we um, sent out an email to our all the the people involved in the clinics in the school asking them if they wanted to be involved in this and about 100 of them said yes. So then we kind of broke off into two separate sects. One was to start trying to make PPE, whether that be gowns or face shields or masks. And then the other was to coordinate the donation efforts. So I would say about, it's probably half and half right now, but mostly people are working remotely. They're calling businesses, they're emailing, they're doing things like that. And then about 20 of the students come in and inventory and distribute to our two main hospital sites, which are Tulane University Medical Center and University Medical Center.
1: And so how how much PPE have you been able to ground up and find and distribute?
2: Yeah, so we have, you know, really amassed more than we ever thought um, we could. We've donated as of today 12,000 N95s, um, 16,000 surgical masks, about 1,400 face shields, 6,000 gowns, and about 3,000 boxes of gloves.
1: Wow, that's, that's great. And you're yeah. distributing these in New Orleans or across Louisiana or where is
2: this? Yeah, our focus is in New Orleans. That is where the greatest need is concentrated in Louisiana currently and where we are learning and eventually maybe practicing. Um, So we do focus our energy on the two hospitals I mentioned before, Tulane and um, University, which is where there's another medical school program in New Orleans, um, the LSU or Louisiana State University's medical program, and that's where their main hospital, but we also go rotate over there, so that's our two focuses. However, the university medical center is under a larger group of hospitals, which is LCMC, and we do go and distribute to their sister sites, which are stretched throughout New Orleans, not just downtown.
1: So tell us where you're finding masks and other PPE.
2: Yeah, so In the first week, we were gaining most of our PPE, most of our masks, gloves, all the things I mentioned, from internally within Tulane. So Tulane consists of a medical school. Also, we have a lot of, you know, researchers and stuff like that. And anyone who wasn't working on COVID stuff very graciously donated everything they had to us, as well as the Uptown campus, which is where the undergraduate studies occur. And they also, their chemistry labs, their biology labs also gave us everything they have. And so for the first, you know, week that kept us really afloat. However, we've also been getting a lot of donations from the community. Two of our main contributors have been the Cajun Army and the New Orleans Chinese Association.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about the Cajun Army and what it is and how they've helped?
2: Yeah. So they're a disaster relief group and they have warehouses throughout Louisiana and they have stockpiles of things like this for times like this. So as soon as they found out what we were doing, we were connected with them through a physician within Tulane. And they, as I said, we started this on a Thursday. By that Monday, we had about... I mean, they gave us the most of our gowns. We are still have. They gave us about a thousand gowns. They gave us like fifty and ninety fives that day and they made another trip since then, and then they're going to make another trip on Friday. so they've been very instrumental in that.
1: yeah, that's pretty wonderful. I think some of our listeners the listeners will remember them as you know the the citizens out in boats rescuing people off rooftops in some mm-hmm. of the. Flooding and Katrina, but that's amazing to hear that they're there for any kind of disaster.
2: Yeah, no, they they serve the almost the entire Gulf Coast. They also went to Houston during the floods um, a couple years ago and stuff. So they are a great organization.
1: And you mentioned that the local Chinese. Community Association was doing a lot with you also. Tell us more about that.
2: Yes. One of our professors, Dr. Xu, um, she usually teaches us histology, but she was also motivated by everything happening, and her and the other members of the New Orleans Chinese Association began fundraising and began using their contacts in China to um, send us PPE as their production ramped up after they were you know, on the downhill slope from the, their COVID crisis.
1: So you're getting masks and other PPE from all kinds of different sources, which is just amazing. You mentioned a bit ago that some of you are organizing community members who are making PPE. Could could you comment on that or tell us more about that?
2: Yeah. Right now, the part of our group is 3D printing face shields. Some of them are using resources to make gowns. And also, we're not greatly involved in hand-sewn masks, just because we want to get our providers, you know, the N95s that they need. But we are collecting those in order to distribute to community members since the CDC recommends that everyone wears masks when they're out in public now.
1: Mm-hmm. And what else sir, have hospitals been asking you for and providers been asking you for?
2: Um, something that came up a couple days ago and we are starting to source and starting to get out is iPads. Um, since no one is allowed in the hospital, that's a new challenge for both families and providers. So we've been sourcing iPads, tablets, things like that in order to hand out to the hospital so that every room hopefully may, could potentially have one so that everyone's in contact with their family as much as they need to be.
1: So Taylor, it sounds like the community has really come together from you guys at Tulane to the Chinese Association to the Cajun Army. It's just incredible. Tell us more about who in New Orleans is doing things that you are interested and surprised and grateful for.
2: Yeah, so one is and we personally benefit from this is the Crew of Red Beans. They come and drop off food to our volunteers that are here in like our makeshift warehouse for breakfast and lunch. And it's the Crew of Red Beans, so they're a Mardi Gras crew, but when this, you know, pandemic hit us, they decided to start employing musicians to deliver the food and so their mission is to not only help the musicians keep them afloat but also keep local businesses afloat by paying them to give us food so it's been really great to see that whole thing coming together we don't want new orleans to lose its music so it's great to see and it's very delicious and is there any music that comes along with that food delivery no it's usually they're very busy so it's usually a drop and go but it's still just yeah good knowing that well wonderful
1: well, listen. This is so fascinating to just hear, and inspiring to hear how you guys, who were, you know, noses in books and and in the clinic, and really on track to be the next generation of healthcare clinicians, are, you know, derailed and doing such amazing work. Really incredible to hear about that, and I. Hope, as we all do, that you'll be back in your book and studying for your boards and life will resume as soon as possible for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your crazy new life to talk with us. Any parting thoughts or um,
2: anything else I haven't asked about that you'd like to share? Um, I just think that you will be surprised what your community can do for you if you just ask for help. So it's what I would encourage if someone anywhere wants to get involved, just kind of put the feelers out there and things will come to you. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate all you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking time out of your day too. In the earlier
0: days of this pandemic in the U.S., public health officials were adamant in arguing that widespread public use of face masks would not be effective in preventing COVID transmission and that civilians purchasing masks was simply an unnecessary drain on the resources available for healthcare workers. This advice has shifted, of course, and last week the CDC officially advised that all people wear cloth face coverings in public settings like grocery stores and pharmacies. All agree that medical grade PPE should still be reserved for healthcare workers and others in direct contact with sick people. And everyone agrees that the use of face masks by the general public can't replace good hygiene or be used as an excuse to relax social distancing measures. Mm. Universal mask use has been policy in nations like South Korea who have successfully flattened their curves. What tipped the CDC into this recommendation, of course, was the realization that asymptomatic and presymptomatic carriers can transmit the virus to others. In a 2008 systematic review published in the Boston Medical Journal, it was found that masks alone were 68% effective in preventing the transmission of SARS-CoV-1. According to an article in The Lancet, widespread or universal public mask wearing destigmatizes and normalizes the practice, ensuring that most of the sick and pre-symptomatic carriers in a society are masked. So if use of masks by the general public may actually be useful in preventing the spread of COVID-19, where do we find the masks? The CDC has posted a video recording instructing civilians on how to make a no-sew mask pattern using a bandana and a coffee filter, and a video showing how to make a mask using rubber bands and folded fabrics. They have acknowledged that most homemade masks will only protect others from be infect- being infected by the wearer's outgoing germs. However, they have identified some materials which can potentially be effective in filtering microscopic particles. HEPA furnace filters, vacuum cleaner bags, 600-count pillowcases, and flannel pajamas. Flannel pajama fabrics have scored highly on tests of filtration ability, and stacked coffee filters have shown medium effectiveness. Bandanas and scarves have scored the lowest, but have still... Still been shown to capture some particles. Dr. Scott Sigal, who's the chairman of anesthesiology at Wake Forest Baptist Health, has described a light test which can help you decide which fabrics are good mask materials. Hold it up to a bright light, he says. If the light passes really easily through the fibers and you can almost see the fibers, it's not a good fabric. If it's a denser weave of thicker material and light doesn't pass through it as much, that's the fabric you want to use. According to a study by Yang Wang, an assistant professor of environmental engineering at Missouri University of Science and Technology, an allergy reduction HVAC filter captured 89% of particles with one layer and 94% with two layers. Furnace filters were found to be able to capture three quarters of particles with two layers and 95% with six layers. The study did point out, though, that some air filters may shed fibers which are potentially harmful to inhale. To prevent inhalation of harmful filters, Dr. Wong recommends placing two layers of cotton fabric on either side of the HVAC filter. His study also found that four layers of a 600 thread count pillowcase were able to capture 60% of particles and four layers of a woolen yarn scarf were able to capture 48% of particles. I don't know how Coloradans will decide whether to sacrifice their expensive high thread count pillowcases or to wear woolen scarves as face masks as our days get warmer here. A person could compromise with three layers of a brew right coffee filter, which have been shown to have a 40 to 50 percent efficiency at filtering out small particles and are certainly cheaper than high thread count pillowcases and cooler than woolen scarves. While quantifying the public health impact of masking the public may be difficult, following the CDC's recommendations may do some real good in flattening the curve and carries little or no risk of harm. A special thank you to Julia Loyton for researching and writing this story.